Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. So welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife uh, here in Las Vegas still, and uh, very happy to have Dr. Bilal Joseph, who's a professor of surgery at the University of Arizona. He's the medical director uh, at Southern Arizona Telemedicine and Telepresence, the SAT program in Tucson, Arizona. Also um, with Chadwick Smith, who's the program director of the Surgical Critical Care Fellowship and the director of the ICU uh, in Orlando Regional Medical Center in Orlando, Florida. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us on Behind the Knife. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. So we just got through a very speedy session where we had to kind of go through things, but uh, at least for the listeners out there, you guys had great talks and kind of went through some more, a little bit more kind of controversial and and maybe some practices that haven't seen its way into full mainstream. Uh, so, um, Chad, we'll start with you. Uh, Take a step back from what you talked about a little bit in terms of TAG and run through a little bit of the basics. We've had, Marty's been on before and behind the knife and talked a little bit about TAG and we've had some different things on, but a couple of high points there and then uh, answer your thing. Can it be trusted and what role is it in both the trauma patient population and then maybe is it something that's out there for the the bigger general surgery cases? Yeah, sure. So um, I think for the uses of TAG, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not as good as, it's not the best thing since sliced bread, if you will. It is uh, really guiding hemostatic resuscitation is probably its best role. Now, that could be a general surgery patient that has a big injury. Uh, you've got a lot of blood loss and, you know, you're sending off labs. I, I don't, I don't use it without getting standard laboratory tests. So it's kind of an addition um, just because I've had different, um, you know, anecdotally, sometimes the tag's normal and the coags are elevated sometimes uh you know it's vice versa and if i've got a patient that's got ongoing uh, active hemorrhage or they appear to be coagulopathic in the or i really want to use as much information as possible um, to figure out how to best actively resuscitate them so what do you do about that situation in terms of the discordant results i mean uh, you know, you're looking at an innovative patient in front of you. You've got the INR that's elevated, and like you had that example, and then the TEG is telling you something else. What do you believe? Uh, I, I try to go with, you know, I guess I go with the lab that agrees with the clinical situation, right? You know, if, if they're obviously not bleeding, the INRs, um, you know, maybe ele- elevated or the TEG's elevated and there's no evidence of coagulopathy, I, I, I might not, I might not do anything. But if they, if the tag's normal and they're oozy everywhere, I'm going to, you know, resuscitate them or, you know, FFP, platelets, whatever, uh, you know. And again, uh, get as much information as, you po- as possible, or at least that's the way I practice. So can you just go over, you know, practically, you know, trauma resuscitation, like what are the steps? How long does it take to get that information back from the tag? How is that being interpreted and how yeah, is it takes about 30 minutes. Usually if, you know, they come in, trauma alert's activated, they get their TXA um, or they get their blood drawn, get their, get their TXA, get the MTP going. Um, and I will try to get a tag, you know, either right, probably ideally right before we start the MTP, you know, that takes five to seven minutes. We have emergency release blood in the trauma bay, just PRBCs. Um, but it's going to be just, you know, it's going to be, you can get the tag drawn or whatever you need drawn uh, prior to getting uh, your MTP. And then after I've given them a couple coolers, if they continue to require, if they continue evidence of coagulopathy, et cetera, um, 
I will go ahead and get another tag. Uh, and then, you know, obviously we're probably in the operating room at that point and uh, just good concert uh, with anesthesia uh, and reminding them because it's not as much in their mind as it is ours as trauma surgeons. So I'll remind them, hey, you're sending this, please send a tag, etc. Um, consider, uh, you know, we also have started giving uh, calcium with our with our MTPs as well. I mean, that's kind of a, a different thing, but hypocalcemia is a big thing. So that's just, when I think of about MTP, I think about TEG, I think about tranexamic acid, uh, replacing calcium, etc. cetera. Uh, that's the way we do it at our shop. So do you see TEG breaking into the mainstream in terms of, let's say, the rural hospital that doesn't have any sorts of, like, it, they can't even run a TEG machine. They don't even have a TEG machine. Um, do you see tag breaking into that market anytime soon or, or is it just convenient enough to follow a protocol based resuscitation? Well, I think those places probably also aren't going to have massive transfusion protocol. Um, and so, uh, you know, I don't know what the exact role would be for that patient population. And we're kind of going along with Wu's question is that how hard was it to implement using the tag? You know, you already talked about getting everyone on board, anesthesiologists, the tag. Was it, was, it a, was it a difficult process getting everyone in the hospital? It was definitely a concerted effort. I, I, it wasn't that difficult, but, you know, you have to have a culture shift. You've been doing, you know, PTN or PTT on everybody for a long time. You know, what's this new thing? It's yeah. just, it, it requires education. Um, I think if you have a robust trauma program with clinical nurse educators to get the staff, and then you have a good group that is willing to try, you know, uh, to evaluate new things, um, not we, and we try to protocolize everything so that we're all doing it uniformly as much as, as can be possible. I think it really it's a culture thing. If I can add a little bit to your question, John, because we've been struggling for almost a year to get TAG into our, we had it as a study through the proper trial. And now getting our, um, you know, where are you going to put the tag machine? Is it going to be in the ED? Is it going to be in the in the in the lab? And it really, we need more data on outcomes to be able to go back to the hospital to actually show that's what's making. It. It's one thing to get the lab values; it's another to actually show that they're making a difference. And that's what we're lacking. But if we had more concentrated data like that, it's easier to go to the hospital and say, "Look, this makes a difference. It saves lives." But that's the data that still is needed. Do you guys, have you seen evidence or either theoretical or actual uh, evidence of um, a danger of a more widespread tech use of this data being misinterpreted, maybe? Um, well, I think if you go on a normal tag, and like that patient I, I put up in my talk today, if that was the only lab that you got, and say you didn't have a medication history, or you know, blunt, blunt trauma elderly patient comes in, you don't know their meds list, and all you get is a tag, but their INR is 3.5 and the tag is normal, but you didn't order that, that's certainly a potential danger. So, gentlemen, we're going to be to the point where the TEG is going to be in the pre-hospital setting, where they're running it on the, you know, on the point of care, and you guys are not only getting a vital sign, but you're also getting uh, the TEG results to guided resuscitation even earlier, even on their way to transfer to the hospital. I think um, also to your point, Jason, um, the TEG helps reduce transfusions, and the institutions that use it and use it a lot, it reduces the type of blood or the FFP that is given. And that's where I think that higher level resuscitation is where the TEG will come in, knowing what the patient has prior to getting there. And the 6S system that's supposed to come in will be cheaper and easier for institutions to use. It doesn't have to be calibrated as much. It comes to your cell phone. So there's a lot of, I think the technology is still catching up. 
Okay, so uh, uh, Dr. Joseph, let's move on a little bit to what you talked about, and that's uh, that, that's kind of the uh, use of TXA. If it's uh, the safety of TXA, the effectiveness of TXA, how it's being uh, adopted, and how it's being administered uh, here and worldwide. If you could talk a little bit, just the high points of your talk. Um, what's how are you currently using TXA, and where are the current uh, limitations or current problems with the administration of TXA? Sure. Um, so. Uh, TXA in the United States is still um, undergoing a, quite a bit of research in the pre-hospital phase. Uh, there's plenty of data. If you look at the data from orthopedic trauma or some of the other um, uh, heavy menstrual bleeding or even trauma itself, all the data that's been published, hundreds of thousands of patients have either shown benefit, so reduced mortality, or uh, no difference at all. Very rarely you'll find some complication rates, and mostly in young, healthy men. And I keep saying that because uh, the military data shows a higher rate of uh, DBTs in, in the patient populations. And the reason for that, some people believe because of their bone marrow actually makes more, um, is more active, and that's why the clot formation does occur. But the 2.7% rate of a DBT versus a life is a very low number. It's very cheap. The dose is averages for twenty to fifty dollars. It's given very easily, and uh, the safety profile is very good on it. When you look outside of trauma, again, it's been utilized at two to three times the doses we're using in trauma as well, and that's what makes it so uh, great as a drug to be able to. So what's the you know what's the holdup then? Because there's a lot of people that are still resistant to using it in the trauma patients. What what kind of things are you hearing? Yeah. People always want to um, uh, give a um, you know if it's worked in the rest of the world doesn't mean it's worked in our advanced system with a ton of resources. And really, I think it's just uh, people want to try and figure out the exact specific patient subset that it should be utilized in. This one drug for everyone that works for everyone is not the right answer. Even at our institution, when we looked at the uh, massively transfused patients who got TXA, we didn't see a difference in that subset. So we're trying to understand, even, and one of the things we just talked about was TEG. TEG helps us identify phenotypes of patients like hyperfibrinolysis. And we're seeing that TXA doesn't really help in that subgroup. But there's very small numbers to that to that data, and so I think that's really the hesitancy. But overall, like I said uh, in my talk, the ATLS, the newest edition, has added TXA to the first you know first thing you do when a patient comes in. One liter of fluid and TXA administration is part of the is the ATLS. So it's it, you know from a national standpoint, it's going to be the recommendation. Do you think that the experience with uh, Factor Seven and all the hype that was around there about a decade ago, and you know especially being deployed during that time, um, everything was Factor Seven. Should we give it to them? Then and then, especially in that patient population, which is you know a little bit of some analogies to what they're finding the military uh, centers that you talked about versus or the military studies versus the civilian. Is that is is there something there? Is it uh... for sure the skepticism that comes from our history with factor seven PCCs, but factor replacement is the next level of trauma resuscitation, um, and and the prospective randomized trials that have been done with TXA show benefit, and you know the, our British colleagues who did the big trials, both the women and the crash, do always joke about you know, having to make it work in the United States. But again, I think we just, our trauma system, our resources, our ability to stop bleeding, our resuscitation, our blood product is very different than the rest of the world. So we just need to make sure that when we are utilizing it, 
it's the it's the right patient. So at the Cleveland Clinic, our orthopedic surgeons are using it routinely on a lot of their major joints and stuff. And as a service within colorectal, we've started a program with a couple of exclusion criteria, those patients that have history of seizures or VTE yeah. history in the past. But for abdominal operations to uh, use it in an elective setting, uh, is this, you think that's the next type of thing? Or is that, are we crazy in doing this? I mean, we had a big uh, meeting and kind of going from there. And yeah, uh, there's not a lot of data within that, but there's a lot in the orthopedic and as well as in the gynoc literature. I think it's the right direction. I think, you know, we need to just clarify the data, make sure we're not hurting anyone. It sounds like you guys are being very safe about it. You know, the emergency department now is using topical TXA. Transplant surgeons are using topical TXA on liver bleeding. Um, it's not the miracle drug that fixes everything, but I think when, my first slide was it's low cost, it's low risk, and there's the benefit's really high. And I think when we think about therapies and what we're doing and advancements in our medical care, you know, that fits the profile of something that we can use in a wide range to see if we can. So that's the future. Dr. Smith, is that, is that uh, how your institution sees it as well? I would, I would agree with that. I mean, it, it, you know, the VTE risk is obviously low in a certain patient population, and so the risk of death from hemorrhage, if it can be decreased that much, it's, it's significant. Our, our EMS has started to uh, carry it on their trucks, so they're going to be giving it in uh, patients yeah, with life threatening I was going to ask if pre-hospital, you have your pre-hospital providers are giving it. So, yeah. Yeah, I'll just say that the future studies, prospective randomized trials that are going on are in pediatric brain injury and burn patients pre-hospital helicopter transport, pre-hospital EMS, these studies are actively going on as we speak, and a lot of centers are enrolled. Are in, the Department of Defense, the military is very interested in this, obviously. For- TXA is old. Why now? I mean, what? I mean, why, it's just been sitting out there. Was there uh, something that kind of prevented it? And- it found its indication for post-menorrhageal heavy bleeding, and uh, really, I think, um, when you talk, I, I got an opportunity to speak to Beverly Hunt, who did the CRASH-2 trial once, and you know, when you're working in austerior environments and in Africa where a lot of these crash two in the women's trial were done and they're under, and there's no blood to give these patients unless someone is transfusing their family member's blood to them, like, you need to find, uh, you know, resources to utilize. And I think that's what instigated this. And then that's opened up this whole world that maybe we just didn't really think about because we have the resources and we don't need to think like that. Right. It's kind of like an issue where something simple that, that has worked for other avenues, it just hadn't been thought about. And then this one trial or, you know, a couple <laughs> trials get published and everything changes. Kind of like the Rivers trial they, talk, t- trial they talked about this morning. I mean, uh, you know, it, one study or a couple studies that led to a whole kind of aha moment in the, you know, trauma surgery community. So with, res- with regards to your respective talks on TEG and TXA, um, if you could, one, each of you could comment on what do you think is the biggest unanswered question when it comes to that topic that you think we'll have a good answer to in the next five years? You know, I, I think maybe applications of TEG in, you know, uh, other than other than guiding hemostatic resuscitation, and of course, if we do go to whole blood, we may not need that, right? Um, other than guiding hemostatic resuscitation, what is the best use for it? Because it disagrees with um, you know conventional laboratory parameters quite often. I think for TXA, um, it's kind of what Scott spoke to, um, really identifying the patient, the exact patient subtypes, the contraindications uh, may 
be small that we um, should not be giving this drug into. But I think that's really, really defining that, you know, not one thing fits everything mentality, but rather, you know, these are these are the criteria. We know it works best and it makes a difference. Excellent. Well, Dr. Smith, Dr. Joseph, thanks for being with us. We hope to talk to you more in the future. And thanks for joining us today on Behind the Knife. I just want to thank you guys for everything you do. All the residents and the people that you've affected is just astronomical and continue the hard work. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. So it's always great to have uh, repeat uh, people back here on BTK and very pleased to have Dr. Jennifer Gurney who is um, an assistant professor of surgery at uh, UCHUS in D.C. and also um, the, at the ISR down in San Antonio, Texas. Recently, also the trauma medical director for OIR over, um, overseas in combat. Jen, welcome back to BTK. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. So let's talk a little bit about um, one of the things that we don't talk a whole lot about here is that people who have gone and deployed and then come home, I've kind of experienced it a little bit myself. Jason just experienced it there. And Talk about a little bit about lessons learned and how do you how do you make that transition from combat uh, in a deployed environment, deployed type medicine, and deployed surgery, and then kind of come back to your regular job? What what's that like, and and how do you go about kind of navigating those waters? Well, that's a you know that's an interesting question. I think it's on multiple different levels. I mean, there's the coming back home from it well it depends on what your deployed environment is if you're in an incredibly busy deployed environment where you're operating every day and seeing seeing blown up service members and um, host national patients on a daily basis coming home can be a bit of a transition personally and professionally and you know things that we can do in the deployed environment like get in 10 or 12 units of blood you know, within a minute and get somebody to the opera, you know, within two to three minutes and then get somebody to the operating room in under 10 minutes. We don't always have those capabilities, even at busy level one trauma centers in the state. So I think that there's this, we have a, a amazing luxury to do things when you have a good team somewhat efficiently that benefits our patients. Um, uh, this last deployment was a, I was in, uh, in Baghdad, Iraq and the trauma medical director for Iraq and Syria. It was a challenging deployment because there was a bit of administrative uh, responsibility with that position, but it was very rewarding working with all the role twos that were uh, throughout Iraq and Syria as well as uh, the role three in Baghdad. It was an awesome team, and we you know, really worked well. We were moderately busy the first part of the deployment, and things slowed down. Uh, towards like January timeframe, Christmas to January. One thing that we also did that that I think is important is we really pushed to take care of some uh, Iraqi army and Iraqi police. So we always had patients. I think that that one of the risks right now with deployments is these low tempo deployments. And you hear about surgeons coming home and saying, yeah, I did zero cases. That is a huge problem for us um, in so many different ways. One, we're going back and we're expected to be competent and confident. And I think that most of us would be competent, but when you haven't operated for many months, you, I mean, no matter who you are, I think that you're a little bit less confident, especially, you know, a case that you haven't done in a while, or if you're doing a challenging case. So having some type of, I don't want to say sustainment training, but having some type of sustainment uh, opportunities while deployed and I felt, uh, you know, fortunate that I was in a leadership position. So at least at the role three, we were able to do some um, elective cases and restorative surgery cases for the host na- nation, uh, army, and police. 
Uh, now, to answer your question, what is hard about coming home? I mean, I, this was my sixth deployment, so each thing has different challenges. Um, but I think getting back into the the tempo at home and, and working with the new team, we do tend to become really close with our teammates downrange. And, you know, to go back to the regular regular hospital and you ask for something and someone kind of blows you off and like, oh, I'll get that for you later. That's just not how we work in the deployed environment. So that can be challenging. But, um, uh, you know, in general, you know, not status quo, I guess. You just get, you just get ready for your next set of orders. <laughs> So I would, I just kind of want to echo a couple of things that you just said, and uh, and ask your opinion about how we bring some of those things back home. Because I would I would agree with you 100%, specifically when it comes to the team dynamic portion of being a part of a a small you know trauma team that you're with every day. You sleep in, in the same room. You know you, you get to know. You know, people when you ask for something, people know will can get it for you before you ask for it because they know you that well. Um, how do we bring that kind of team dynamic back to the major trauma centers here in the United States? Because it, it seems like a lot of times it's chaos with team members not communicating. How do we bring a little bit of that home? I think that it's probably, I think it's probably some trauma centers have that. People who work all the time on a certain team. You know, uh, I mean, I was a resident uh, in Baltimore Shock Trauma, and I think that they, because they're always the same team that's on together, so I think they do that. And, but we do have a lot of turnover and variability in our military hospitals, and I think that that's really, because we're all training centers. The medics are training, the nurses are training, so we never really have a chance to um, establish that team dynamic. I don't think that challenge is going to go away. I think the things to mitigate it are good leadership and then try and work with the temporary team because our teams are always temporary. Uh, the temporary team that you have to try and build, you know, trust and synergy and so you can work together well when it really counts. So most of our listeners out there may have recently read uh, a somewhat uh, surprising, and uh, from my standpoint, being prior military and now being out for a couple of years, article in the Journal American College of Surgeons by the um, now uh, ex um, uh, consultant to the Surgeon General talking about one of the things that you talked about, maybe in, to use that term that they use, the authors of that, the crisis in terms of volumes in the military and sustainability and a lot of the things that you so eloquently talked about. So any comments on that? Any thoughts about, um, you know, uh, being active duty and making sure that you have not only the ability to take care of the patients you take care of on a day-to-day basis, but also have that same ability to make sure that we're ready downrange? Because we, as surgeons, and all of us here sitting in this room have either been uh, prior, you know, uh, surgeons in the military, continued to be surgeons in the military. And we have the ultimate kind of, um, uh, the irony of war, it's the ultimate oxymoron there that you, we need to be busy, but to be busy means there's casualties and nobody really wants casualties, right. but it's, it's kind of a little bit on the ironic side. What are your thoughts about that? Oh, I have lots of thoughts about it, but I have to be a little careful since I don't know how wide your listenership is for this, but, yeah. um, I have used the word crisis. I actually say crisis in all caps is what, what we're facing in Army surgery and Army general surgery. And um, I think that the article that Dr. Mary Edwards wrote uh, with her team of authors it was uh, accurate, brilliant, incredibly well-written, and very true. And, and our senior leadership should read that and have, you know, we have a few things. We have lots of different initiatives. There's a, you know, Mission Zero Act to get surgeons to be working in level one trauma centers. 
But, you know, that won't be all the surgeons in the military. And everybody in the military, one thing you can say for sure, 100%, no questions asked that any surgeon or provider that deploys wants to do the best. They want to be given the opportunity that not a single combat casualty dies or that there's any preventable deaths when they're downrange. I mean, that, that I can say emphatically uh, that that's our community. But I think that we are not... You know, in order to do that, lots of things have to happen, and we have to have clinical volume. And I'll tell you, it becomes increasingly challenging uh, to have the appropriate amount of clinical volume. Now, then there are people that say, well, you know, even at places that are busy, they say, well, you know, we're we're not going to get the same exposure. That's true. I mean, you're not going to see a, you know, dismounted complex blast injury most places. You might see them occasionally in this country at certain centers, but the principles of how you manage a critically injured trauma patient remain the same, you know, and how to lead the team remain the same, and how to get a patient quickly to the operating room. Those are concepts, not, not things. So I think that getting into busy centers and having the opportunity to be clinically active, even if you're not doing huge trauma cases all the time, is, is important. And our, uh, our leadership, senior leadership, has to hear that and continue to work on um, creative ways to keep their surgical force busy, or they are going to be looking at no surgical force because surgeons are not going to stay in the military if we can't be clinically active if we can't have rewarding practices and uh and and you know deployment is important it's our job to deploy it's our job to take care of patients or to to be available to take care of patients even if we don't have anybody to take care of but they have to be aware of you know policies that are putting surgical teams scattered all around the battlefield some within 20 minutes of each other uh, and the effects that this has long-term on the surgical force. So uh, The Crisis of Conscience is a fantastic article. I think everybody should read it. I think that crisis can be used in many different ways to def- define or to de- describe uh, what is currently going on in, I can't talk about the Air Force and Navy, but I can talk about Army surgery, and, and I think it, it's a bit sobering. So not only... Uh in increasing our volumes here, you had, you'd mentioned briefly that you were in a position where you were kind of able to help influence to where um, you and your team were allowed to take care of uh, local uh, forces and uh, civilians. Um, I was fortunate when I was deployed to be also in that same situation where we were allowed to take care of locals and civilians, and I absolutely think it helps um, with the team that when we did get U.S. casualties, I'm not sure they would have survived um, had we not had that experience. How do we, what needs to happen for us, those opportunities to become um, available um, on future deployments? Do you see that happening? Yeah, I mean, I think, yes, but I want to make a comment on something that's probably going to get me into trouble, but I'm going to say it anyway. You know, um, speaking with a, uh, a and so non-surgeon, but a physician uh, who was in a leadership position in the deployed environment, we were talking about readiness of the team, the interpretation of this person was, well, my team has, they have not been busy. They've been, they're well rested. They've not been busy. They haven't done anything. So they're prepared and ready to go. And, and this was somebody who had influence over what, you know, what people were doing. And I, you know, said, I respectfully and vehemently disagree with that. If you want to be ready to take care of a blown up, shot up, whatever combat casualty, you want your team to be as busy as possible without burning out, you know, your team, but you want them to have clinical volume on a regular basis. 
And I agree, you know, we, we, uh, we actually both took care of a really, really injured patient. And uh, when that patient got to us from your site, you know, we, uh, everything functioned really, really well. And when we did our AAR after that, we said, you know, with the, you know, 10 or 12 traumas before that, you know, building up to this really devastating injury, we were glad because we had lots of lessons learned as our team grew and meshed together. So... That was so. So one leadership has to understand. Leadership has to understand. They have to support that. And I think they're getting there. I really do. I was fortunate to have a fantastic medical service corps uh, commander, a, a task force med commander, who really understood the importance of clinical volume. So how do we do that in the deployed environment? Uh, humanitarian care. We find it rewarding. Uh, and the, the, what people will say to counteract that is, well, we're trying to get these systems to be independent. How can we, you know, we're really hurting the, the, the healthcare system of that country long range. Well, no, we're not really if we bring in the host national physicians and if we try and work with them and educate them, and then it's really up to them to, you know, continue that charge. But so I think that, you know, being able to have leadership, so the Task Force Med Command and CJTF Command supported us doing this restorative surgery with the Iraqi army and Iraqi police and so leadership and our leadership needs to understand and we need to look for creative options and you know I think that um, humanitarian care is a win-win and we should try and have that on every deployment these units that deploy there's always everywhere we go people need surgical care and we should have the opportunity to provide that a couple questions going back to uh, I've heard this debate on um, providing humanitarian care when you're deployed and you know you're kind of undermining the systems that are already there but you already mentioned that you're training with the surgeons that that's are already, what people say who don't yeah, want us to do that right exactly so it was, but is there any other reasons why um, the military would not want to get involved with something like that even though we're all occupying these reasons I mean, you know, obviously there there are because we haven't really been, it hasn't been in the medical rules of engagement for a while. My first few deployments, the majority of what I did was humanitarian care, pediatrics, you know, pediatric surgery or pediatric trauma. And so it, it there's obviously things that go on at the socio, socio, social political arena that we, we don't know about. But I think that we can explain it in a way that Everywhere we go, we're not going anywhere that has a fantastic, or we haven't been anywhere, not so we're not going anywhere, who knows where we go, but like they don't have necessarily fantastic medical infrastructure. So we can create an opportunity to learn from the host national surgeons and medical teams, and they can learn from us. And the people that benefit are one, the patients, and then the second, our future patients, because our team has had a chance to work together. I mean, I'm sure that there are reasons that people say no to this. I just, you know, I'll, I'll continue to argue that it's the right thing to do for multiple different levels or multiple different reasons. You know, I think it goes without saying, and again, I've been on both sides of the coin, been in the military for a very long time, and now at the Cleveland Clinic, where we're extremely busy on other ones. But for all the listeners out there, I think it's worth saying that uh, for those of you who aren't involved in the military, you can pick up any journal and identify these volume outcome relations. And now you carry it over to a center of excellence and how volume is tied into that. And in many places, um, 
across uh, where our listeners are, including the U.S. and many rural places, you run the risk of having the exact same parallels as what's happening in the active duty military, where you know, you're, you're going to find a situation where uh, is it going to come one point that you won't be able to do certain types of operations, you can't do a Whipple anymore, and you can't do a, um, a rectal cancer case anymore, or some of these other ones. And so uh, you know, I ask everybody out there that's listening to this, that you think, well, I'm not military, and these things don't necessarily pertain to me. They, they very well pertain to you one day, and it's actually something that you know, our country as a whole, because if you even look at the geographic distribution of our country, I grew up in northern Wisconsin, a very small town, and I would tell you that it's very difficult to be able to say, well, what do you do with the family member? Say we had four general surgeons in my small town, which is actually much bigger than some of the other surrounding towns. But what do you do with the family if they say, well, you're not going to have that operation there and we're going to send you to some regional things like they do in Europe. But in Europe, a lot of things are a little bit closer. And so does the family travel with them? And what happens to that patient when they maybe have a complication or a follow-up and they got to go back there? So these are real issues. And, and I appreciate your honesty and I appreciate your insight because it's not just the military that these issues pertain to. This is is a this is a that a potential crisis that expands well beyond the military extends um, to medicine in general to, do, to decide how we're going to tackle some of these issues you know and I, I think you're right it becomes a not just a military or just a civilian thing because as a medical community I think there needs to be a mechanism so that if somebody needs I mean if somebody needs not retraining but let's say you've done something else for a couple years Ben uh, an administrator, gotten an MBA, or done, I don't know, developed apps, I mean, who knows what, that took you away from, like, clinical practice. There should be a mechanism, and I think it should be top-down led, that, you know, experts have, you know, give, give surgeons the opportunity to, not, not retrain doesn't sound right, but some mentorship for a little while and say, yep, you're good to go again. You know, I think that that should be something that, you know, senior leaders look at. So if somebody is or someone does a humanitarian mission or deployment or whatever, I'm talking military or civilian, that takes them away from their clinical practice. So they're rusty. And, you know, you don't want to be the, the patient that they're operating on if they haven't operated in a year or two. So give them an opportunity to be mentored to get their confidence back and then somebody to be sure that they're also competent. And I think that that can happen in the civilian world, that can happen in the military world. But something that we could lean on our civilians for is, you know, or people who are prior military is going to, you know, going to Fort Campbell or Fort Benning or whatever, and you staying down there for two weeks and working with, you know, a few surgeons and doing some cases. I mean, that type of mentorship, um, you know, clinically in the operating room, I think is really valuable. We did something like that at Launch School. I mean, for a different reason, um, but I was at Launch School for four years, and one of the most valuable things was when the uh, the senior visiting surgeons with the American College of Surgeons, as, as well as the um, SVS, the Vascular Society, would go over to Launch School, spend two weeks with us. It was such a fantastic experience for the general surgeons at Launch School because we would do the vascular cases with them, we'd do big trauma cases, and that type of mentorship goes a long way. And if you're a well-trained surgeon, and I think that the majority of military surgeons are well-trained surgeons with, with, with good, you know, basics, you know, having some, and I'm not saying that that makes a, a, a bad surgeon into a good surgeon, but if you're a well-trained surgeon and you care about your patients and you have intermittent periods of mentorship, I really think that that could help not solve all of our problems in army surgery, but be one of the mechanisms that we should consider. And I think that uh, there's a lot of civilians who would be willing to, you know, spend two weeks a year and go and work with military surgeons. 
so on the positive side of things, um, you know, it, it made the national news. The president brought up a particular case, and we don't have to go into the specifics about the case. But uh, you were involved in uh, in taking care of that. Lessons learned about, uh, you know, one of the things about that particular case, about the, the teamwork and some of the things yeah. that we're able to do that results in the, in the good things that are out there and being in the military. Yeah, and you're right. There are a lot of good things. I, I don't mean to be like negative Nelly. I mean, you know, I, I see, you know, what, where I work and what I do, I kind of see a different perspective sometimes. And we we do have the most amazing group of surgeons who are dedicated, hardworking, and very, very good at what they do. So let, let me let me put that out there. So this case, what is amazing about this case is the system worked perfectly. You know, uh, an individual with injuries who would really be classified potentially as non-survivable was taken care of by a Roll 2 surgical team that Jason was on, had heroic measures. They saved his life. They absolutely saved his life. Then was, uh, this patient was put on a, uh, a highly capable transport capability and brought to the Roll 3 in Baghdad, where he was critically sick. And between um, whole blood transfusion, multiple operations, advanced ICU care, uh, we were able to get this guy back to the States using ECMO transport. So ECMO came to Baghdad, and, uh, or the ECMO team came to Baghdad and picked this patient up. And um, it was really uh, impressive from the, from the point of injury, from the medic that was recognized in the State of the Union address, from the medic uh, through the entire continuum of care. It goes to show you how capable we are. And it, I mean, it is pretty amazing that uh, the way we can care for patients like this. So something I'm very proud of to be involved with that case and proud of to work with the team, uh, the team along the continuum who just did a fantastic job, yourself included, Dr. Bingham. Well, thank you. But it, it all goes to like what you're saying with the team and what we were talking about before, about having that team who's well-rehearsed, well-practiced at working together. Because in this particular case, it was somebody that the team knew personally and when somebody you know personally rolls through the door, um, it, people need to be, to be have that muscle memory. Um, and, and again, just uh, like you were saying, absolutely impressed with from the point of injury from uh, Justin Peck, who was recognized by the president. He saved uh, this patient's life. Um, and the way the team just functioned and the system just worked was really impressive. And I absolutely appreciate the role three and your support throughout that process as well. You know, I think that, you know, what we have to do is, you know, we have to look at, so what Mary's article talks about is we have to maintain our excellence. There are, we do, we have to maintain to be able to do these things that really people look at that case and can't believe all the stuff that was done for that patient from point of injury back to when he got to San Antonio. So we need ways, and I think we've had them, right? We were busy when we were deployed. We were busy surgeons, and we got to be really good. And how do we maintain that? And we have to get a little creative. We have to leverage our civilian system. And we have to remember that we have, as surgeons, we have the most important job because we're taking care of the guys and gals that go and say, yep, I'll do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to risk my life because I know that I'm going to have an awesome surgical team, medic, and route care capability on the tail end of that if I get hurt. And that's our obligation, and we will have to look for creative ways because we do have some challenges. I think we'll have to leverage the civilian system to do that and get leadership support. But, um, you know, I was that case, and there were so many other cases, I was so proud 
I mean, like, it was the best part of being trauma medical director. You know, I've deployed a lot to Roll 2s, and, you know, being able to work with Roll 2 surgeons, knowing how austere and how resource limited and the types of saves that happened on a daily basis, I was humbled. Uh, I think you guys are probably all better than I was, but uh, <laughs> uh, it was just an incredibly rewarding job, and, and I think that we have to continue to foster that and be sure we stay excellent. Well, to the both of you, and I know I speak for multiple listeners out there, thank you for your service. I get to say that now on the side of uh, the thing. And, um, and Jennifer, thanks again for coming on Behind the Knife and sharing some of your experience. And really the, the evolution of this of military medicine is always an ebb and flow. But we uh, stand by saying that we have the number one medical system in the world. And so thanks again for everything. Yeah, thank you. So uh, we are, just want to make a note uh, how excited we are to be here at the Trauma Critical Care and Acute Care Surgery Conference here in uh, beautiful Las Vegas at the Caesars Palace. I think it's important that everybody understands a little bit about the conference itself. Roughly anywhere between 1,300, 1,500 people are here. This is actually, this year is the 51st consecutive uh, conference in, here in beautiful Las Vegas. That's really incredible. Uh, I think what I enjoy most about this conference is, is the fact that it's full of just practical information. Um, it's, it's stuff you can come and hear from leaders in the field, um, and it's really information that you can apply to your practice starting tomorrow. Um, and it's also a great place to get, uh, they have a, a great program, a great syllabus, great um, uh, um, supplemental information, um, and you can get your entire year's worth of CME uh, here in one sitting. Uh, and like Dr. Steele already mentioned, uh, next year will be the 52nd year, uh, consecutive year of this, and that will take place uh, at Caesars Palace like it is every year on April 15th through the 17th, uh, obviously 2019. So, Yeah, so if you weren't able to make it this year, just mark your calendars, try and get out here next year. It's really a fantastic conference. So uh, again, we're going to go today and uh, try and uh, give you a little bit uh, of a sampling of the type of things you might be able to hear at this conference. And we just want to say again, thank you to uh, uh, Dr. Maddox for inviting uh, Behind the Knife here. Uh, this is our third year of being here to cover the conference and a special thank you to Mary who uh, behind the scenes has been running it. So again, join us April 15th through 17th of 2019 here in beautiful Las Vegas, Caesars Palace. Until next time, dominate the day.